This evening I want to speak about and explore the theme of how metta practice develops and how we move from arriving and in some ways stabilizing our our being so that we can practice and then engaging in this uh, dedicated practice of uh, inclining towards the kind heart. And having glimpses of times of how at certain points the sense of practice and exertion or effort uh, falls away and there's more the resting in the kind heart of our being. more and more, and integrating it increasingly with all the moments of our lives, including our action and being in the world. So in a way, I'll touch on these different steps from arriving to fruition, (laughs) at least pointing in that direction really for for all of us. And I think we all have appreciated to some extent uh, really the audacious practice that we're doing. You know? I mean, someone from the outside would come in and just look at, you know, a bunch of people sitting, walking around quietly, you know. I remember when uh, Achan Chah the great Thai teacher who was the uh, teacher of Jack Kornfield, Achan Sumedho, and other teachers came. And I was actually on a retreat with him when he came to the U.S. for the first time. And it was at, in Massachusetts. And people were walking around slowly. And he um, <clears throat> said, uh, you know, hope they're happy. It kind of looks like a mental hospital. LAUGHTER um, I forget the translation, but he, he was, he was, um, and so, but what we're doing is something that is, uh, is radical. You know, we are intending to um, operate with the kind heart every moment. We are inclining towards the kind, the awake heart. Uh, every moment. And we are taking this not just as a practice which we may do sometimes, but as actually, as Sylvia was saying last night, and as in the, as is in the uh, Metta Sutta, it's a path. It's a path of peace. That we are uh, doing a practice which is about um, inclining towards that heart training, practicing here, and then bringing it out as best we can uh, in all the circumstances, including difficult ones. It's about really, uh, we might say, leading with the kind heart as a way of life. It's radical. Some of you may say, wait, I didn't sign up for that. (laughs) Uh, 
It's a very, it's a, it's a radical and inspiring path. And, we, and, you know, sometimes I reflect, my gosh, there's a text like the Metta Sutta that was composed, you know, almost 2,600 years ago, which is talking about those who are skilled in goodness, those who are dedicated to goodness. Another way that we can speak about this, I think generally that includes both the metta practice and the mindfulness practice, is to speak about a commitment to being responsive rather than reactive. Very ordinary English way to talk about it. But I think quite profound to be responsive. Responsive means that we have some degree of freedom. We're not bound by our reactions and habits. And we're, again, we're intending to be responsive. We're training in a way to be able to be responsive uh, moment by moment. And of course that means being very familiar with how we're reactive, doesn't it? I've often thought we should have in our promotional materials at Spirit Rock, come, learn about all your bad habits. I know (laughs) one of our retreats has a t-shirt which says, what was it, bad habits need to die? Is that what it is? Uh, And we may may have a more affectionate relationship to them, but, but there's a way that we, you know, I've sometimes thought we have promotional material that says, come, with many friends, learn about your multiple ways that you get stuck and lost. <laughs> I don't know, is that, that's not prominent on our website, is it? No, but it's actually, you know, we know it's part of what we do. And so, um, if that's helpful as a way to frame, you know, it's responsiveness of heart, it's responsiveness of mind, it's, it's an ability to be really fresh, and come from the depths of our being. That's really what this is about. That's another word for responsive. So this again, I I would say this path is very audacious. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace and later with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. That's very... um, It's a very profound intention. You know, and there are many who have manifested that, who can be our guides. And uh, tonight, uh, I think in part in honor of the uh, birthday of uh, Dr. King, in two days, in the holiday, on the last day of our retreat, I'm going to bring in his voice some, because he is in this lineage a very powerful uh, spokesperson in this lineage. And, you know, many people say he is the, uh, kind of the, what, the very highly developed moral and spiritual voice, perhaps the most profound voice in our culture with imperfections, which we know of, right? So human being, but very can, you know, a person who expresses these qualities. This is what he said. This call for a worldwide fellowship 
that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's own tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. So we're in a way practicing to come more in touch with that in our own being. And we do this in a very simple way by calling forth through our phrases typically that sense of kindness. And again, the other aspect of it is, is that we see where our heart is. We call forth kindness and then we check out what's there, right? And sometimes there's some kindness, sometimes there's distraction, sometimes there's something else. And we keep on noticing that. And again, I, I think as I said uh, yesterday uh, in the uh, 4 p.m. instructions, it's really important to see this practice as really an intention practice we're inclining and in a way we let happen whatever happens. We incline through our phrases towards metta, towards that warmth, but we let it go after that. Like that line from T.S. Eliot, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. So we work with the phrases, then we let be what what happens. And the, the development of metta is sometimes mysterious. The first time I ever did metta uh, for, for a protracted time was for about a week. And I was on my own. And actually, I think I didn't have any instructions. <laughs> you know, it was before we, there were metta retreats. And I, and I, I, you know, I'm actually not sure how I actually spent a week. <laughs> I don't think I was saying phrases. But I was doing something, and I thought it would develop metta, and it felt dry. And it didn't seem like anything would happen, and I thought, um, you know, maybe metta is for other people. (laughs) You know, maybe I'll go back to mindfulness and the cultivation of wisdom. And, uh, you know, then one day over breakfast, when I wasn't even doing anything with metta, I just heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> and I was very surprised. And, you know, I, I, I was encouraged, you know, I say, well, maybe something's working. <laughs> you know, and it, it's like that. So we have to have some patience. It is mysterious. Things surface. You know, there can be a sense of dryness. You stay with it. And then 10 minutes later, something blossoms, right? I think we know that probably by this point. You know, the thing. So, we have, so it's important to stay with it, and it's mysterious. And we really just stay with that uh, practice of uh, keeping on intending. You know.
there's a way that the, the uh, and we'll be starting to explore this tomorrow, uh, metta is really part of a family of heart practices which develop that sense of warmth and kindness and gladness in our, in our hearts more and more. And we'll be exploring the, really the family of the heart practices. Metta is often taught first, but we'll be also exploring compassion and uh, sympathetic joy, which is especially joy and the joy of others, sometimes related to gratitude for, for ourselves and others. Uh, and equanimity, which are traditionally the family called the Brahma Vihara or the divine abodes. And then I think there's an increasing family of heart practices that might also include forgiveness, that could include gratitude, that can bring in uh, other practices done in other traditions like Tonglen, some of you have done, or I think bringing it the, the uh, practice of the heart into relationship and uh, speech can bring in uh, empathy. I think of empathy as a very powerful relational heart practice. It's really tuning into what's there for another without commentary really, just really having the heart be available, a relational practice. And uh, the speech practices also can be, uh, can be a really a place where we bring in the spirit of metta uh, and the guidelines for uh, skillful speech. One of the guidelines is really to speak with um, the metta heart, to speak out of that energy, one of the, one of the guidelines. Um, this is from the uh, Tibetan tradition, a teacher named Patro Rinpoche from the, uh, I think the end of the 19th century. Everything you say with your mouth or do with your hands, instead of being harmful to others, should be straightforward and kind. Very simple. Yeah, that bringing that spirit of metta into our practice. I think the reason that we can be uh, so audacious with this practice is because uh, we are most deeply in our being kind and loving. And this is really what we find in the teachings and what we find in the most developed teachers that uh, we're not so much producing kindness or the good heart, but we're uncovering it. And we're working through what covers it over. That's really the, the understanding. So it's, so this sense of uh, metta traditionally was understood as being in our being, often a level or two beneath our ordinary experience. You know, there's a, in the classical text, there's a, a term called the brightly shining factor of mind and heart, which is there with everyone, even those who are cruel or, or um, unskillful, really everyone. And that, qual- that factor of mind is there for everyone, sometimes beneath the surface. And as we touch the depth as we work through what obscures that quality of metta, it sometimes has the quality of shining. And there are many texts where it's, uh, where, where the Buddha says, luminous is this mind and heart. 
in its essence. So there's this sense that our deeper nature has that, has that quality. King, King said it this way, he said, there is in human nature, let me see if I remember this, there is in human nature a deep goodness. I think I'm paraphrasing there, but it's really saying there is deep in human nature a fundamental goodness. That was his finding and his teaching. One of the ways that we can see that, and really it's part of our practice, is that we also uh, can have this training in metta lead us to be able to manifest metta increasingly when things are challenging or difficult. Metta is not just something that's there for the good times. You know, of course, we need to train in protected environments, and then we bring it out. We bring out the metta increasingly into difficult circumstances. Um, there's, a, there's a book which I like very much uh, by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. And she studies um, a number of, uh, not especially natural disasters, but also some, some disasters like uh, 9-11. And she studied them closely. She found that the usual view that you find in the media was actually not accurate, but basically when there's not rampant fear in a natural disaster, there's incredible goodness that manifests. And she found this over and over again in situation after situation. San Francisco earthquake, earthquake in Mexico City in 1985, over and over again, she found that uh, goodness and sharing and giving would manifest. And I've seen that myself in some crisis situations I've been part of. And we could take that as um, really manifesting. I think something that Sylvia often says, when we're not startled and afraid, which is a big if, <laughs> but when, when, when that's not the case, our hearts are good and they manifest. So very, very important. So I want to talk some about some of the aspects of that development of metta that I, that I mentioned before, that those qualities of stabilizing, coming to, um, coming to practice, working with what comes up, and moving into this quality of metta more as a natural expression of our being. So, um, so I'll talk about a few things. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, way that we come to metta and we work with that sense of developing intention and stabilizing our being. So we, we come to be able to uh, be here. Really, um, the, the practice of metta requires that we actually have some degree of integrity already, some degree of living ethically. It's actually very hard to practice if we don't have a basic ethical quality to our lives. Very hard to stabilize and be present. So that, that quality of, of uh, ethical practice as part of the path of metta, which we looked at last night, is very, very important. And we come here and we begin to train to, um, 
learn to, I would say, to lead with our hearts, to bring that sense of kindness increasingly to the fore. You know, and for many of us, we didn't learn to lead with our hearts. You know, I think um, for me, partly as a man growing up in this culture, uh, I learned especially to lead with my um, analytic problem-solving capabilities. <laughs> and the training in metta really helped bring out really that ability to lead with the heart. And for some of us, you know, we maybe were are de- well-developed in, in that kind heart. For, and I, I, knew, I knew that I had a very, very kind heart. You know, I think I knew that from a young age because, like, I, I cried during driver ed movies. <laughs> and... <laughs> And other sorts of situations, um, but we we um, for some of us it really is a training to come more to the hearts, and it can feel hard. It can feel I'm really caught in my thinking a lot. I'm really, you know, I'm just really I have hard I have a hard time accessing that. And so the metta is in many ways a training. That's why it can sometimes take some time. We keep coming back, and we also try to find kind of the doorway of practice which works for us. There's a real art form to finding the uh, ways of practicing metta that especially work for us, or the ways of bringing out the heart, whether it's with the appropriate phrases or different methods of metta, or finding the ways in daily life. You know, some it might be, maybe especially through compassion, might really resonate, or some other other, uh, practices even. So part of that arriving and stabilizing and part of what happens uh, in the course of metta practice is that we develop further in concentration. We develop further in being able to stay with the phrases. And this this is a big part of the metta practice. It was, uh, metta was classified by uh, Buddha Gosa, who really systematized the form of metta practice that we especially do here, around 500, so over 1,500 years ago. And for him, he classified metta practice as a form of concentration practice. So the, I received at least one note about asking about the history of metta practice. And the kind of practice that we do now is not the, we don't know the exact methods of the Buddha. We have a sense of some of them, but we don't know the, we don't know all the methods of metta practice. So the methods of using phrases and moving through categories, that comes from uh, about 1,500, 1,600 years ago and comes to us particularly through the Burmese tradition, through working with uh, teachers like Upandita who taught Sharon Salzberg, who sort of brought a whole generation along with metta. And what we find in the actual teachings of the Buddha are a lot of phrases, and we find a practice that I think I, I hope we can introduce soon at the retreat, which is a kind of more energetic and embodied way of doing metta, which is, could be called a radiating metta. It's that we find it in the text where it says, where it says radiating kindness over the entire world. And there are a lot of places in the text where it talks about radiating in multiple directions having a sense of the heart moving out and radiating 
in all directions, even over significant distance. And I'll, I'll come back to that later. So that's a little bit of a, a context setting. And so we, we, we work to uh, develop this quality of settling of our being around the metta, you know, which can be both challenging and quite beautiful. Uh, there's a line that I really like from the uh, philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, uh, purity of heart is to will one thing. And there's a way that we're just really, all we're doing all day long is inclining towards kindness. And it can be, it really, at certain moments can be deeply relaxing. We do not need to figure out what to do. <laughs> you know, maybe we need to look into how to respond. This is coming up. But the general inclination is towards kindness each moment. And so there's a certain ease to it. The word concentration actually is not a great translation of the word samadhi. And there's, there's actually the, the etymology of samadhi, uh, the, the word sam means together. It's similar to some Western words like sam or summary. And the, the adi means to, uh, to put something or to place something. So it really means to place together. So the sense of what we translate as concentration, what we're doing with the metta is we are kind of placing together, gathering continually this intention of kindness. Another, you know, some other translations are developing a kind of composure or steadiness of mind, um, kind of unifying our awareness in steady, undistracted attention, in this case, directed towards uh, the, the phrases, the inclination of kindness. And it's, it's really this uh, subtleness is very, is very much a natural quality. You know, we, we can call it concentration and it can sound, you know, the English connotations are, I'm gonna really make effort and mm, intensely focus and you can, it's, it's actually um, what we find, I think what we find here and what we find in other contexts is that the deeper steadying of the attention is increasingly just relaxing and opening up to a natural ability of the attention just to stay steady. You know, and sometimes it takes a while to get there, but this quality of relaxing has to be part of our practice. So if we find ourselves in saying the phrases, feeling like there's overexertion, we want, to, we want to relax some. A metaphor often used is to be like a musical instrument, not too tight, not too loose. Can I ask, am I too tight? Can I loosen a little bit? Am I too loose? Then I guess tighten a little bit <laughs> and so forth. So to, to work in that way. from the Buddha, there comes a time when one's mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. The concentration is then calm and refined. It has attained to tranquility and mental emotional unification. It is no longer maintained by effort. So there is a natural quality that arises of, of that concentration.
There's a, a, a writer from the Russian Orthodox tradition, Theophane from the, uh, I think Father Theophane from the uh, 19th century, he said, uh, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. So there's something about that quality of the kind heart which is steady, which is calm, which is peaceful, but in a way is full of energy. That's, that's the direction we're going. And there's an interesting relationship of our development of concentration to, to language. It's always, it's been very interesting for me to practice metta and to see that uh, the working with the phrases over time can have a deeply calm and concentrated mind, even though I'm using words continually. And, and there's almost like a different level of the mind is working than our usual discursive mind. And we can feel that. Do you know that sometimes? It's like the words keep happening, but they're, they're not distracting us. They're working on, they're working on a different level. This is from uh, Rumi about moving to that, uh, moving away from the usual use of language. At night I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. (laughs) So a few suggestions about working with this quality of stabilizing attention, stabilizing the work with the phrases. Um, Try to keep coming back with a relaxed quality. Again, notice if there's any quality of straining and see if you can just keep coming back in a relaxed way. It, it, it goes against a lot of our conditioning and habits. We're looking for deeply relaxed persistence. <laughs> deeply relaxed persistence, that, sound, that sounds good. I should write that down, I didn't have it in my notes. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's a way that there's a balance of doing and then moving in more into that being mode. You know, we're doing, it takes a lot of sort of effort to keep saying the phrases, but then we have a relaxed quality and we let it, we let things, we let things be. Helpful, as I mentioned, to stay with the practice. Be careful of coming to generalizations about how the practice is going. It's it's so mysterious, you know, the way this is in all types of practice. We can be seemingly not so still, distracted, we stay with it. And again, half an hour later, mm, gushing love. <laughs> it can happen like that, right? So it's mysterious. So be careful about assessing how your practice is going. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, only assess your practice at five-year intervals. <laughs> And most of us won't be in that five-year interval quite before the end of the retreat. So be a little careful about assessing things. Sometimes we have to have some of that more forceful effort. For example, you may, you may notice, uh, we were talking about what happens when unresolved issues come up. You know, and then again, if they're coming up uh, strongly, 
we can sometimes work with them in certain ways, but there's sometimes, I'll just mention one practice which I find very helpful. Let's suppose there's some unresolved issues which are coming up regularly, but they're not leading to you know, strong emotions, not so strong, but they're just there. And they're saying, you know, like, like Sylvia was saying, I noticed you have a little bit of free time. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to figure this one out? <laughs> and um, one strategy which I, I often encourage is to actually say, not now, but the last morning of the retreat, let's reserve 15 or 20 minutes when we're pretty calm, still in the retreat, and look at that unresolved situation. But not now in the movement of the retreat. And tell yourself that. And so sometimes we have to actually reach that internal agreement with ourselves and say, when that comes up again, not now, not now, not now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and um, sometimes we use the uh, metaphor of training a puppy. Just saying, okay, not now. We'll go there later. So we have, we have, to, we have to work with that. And we can have some, sometimes again, there can be humor that develops uh, when we're developing that stability and concentration. We can, uh, we can notice, for example, that the uh, mind will uh, develop the phrases in unique and uh, um, inappropriate ways. As Sylvia was saying, you know, one of my favorite is, uh, at one point, my, one of my phrases was, may I be... Uh, happy and contented. And I found the phrase developing, may I be happy and cemented. <laughs> now another one was, uh, I think, may I be safe and free from harm. And it was, may I be safe from form <laughs> and free from form. So anyway, we can, these are technically called meta muddles. And so we can, sometimes we have contests to develop the best meta muddle and have, you know, announce the winner at the end of the retreat, but I think, I think we're not going to do that. There's, a, there's another uh, aspect that occurs in this kind of the middle range. I'm, I'm talking about almost like uh, four phases of practice. One is we arrive, we stabilize more, and this again has to do with uh, how we live being ethical and so forth. We stabilize, we develop in concentration. And then there's a second phase which we're really practicing. We're putting out effort. Things happen. We develop further, maybe in concentration. We also go through what we have been calling a phase of purification. Actually, I shouldn't say a phase because it takes, it's pretty much our lives. Okay. And and by purification, we, we, we can really, you know, we can work with that metaphor that says, you know, we can say in meta practice, that, that sense of purification has two meanings. One, we develop towards the, what we could call the pure or the, the, uh, the beautiful qualities of heart, that, that, that basically that simple kindness. You know, and if, if people don't like the word pure, we can, we can find other language. And then we also see 
what we might call the, the, the impure or what stands in the way of the metta, what comes up, the reactivity, the self-judgment, the anger, the fear. And a lot of the practice that we work with here is part of that process of purification. You know, it's, it's interesting. Generally, we find metta retreats quite a bit more emotionally volatile than mindfulness retreats. People have pretty intense dreams at times. Has anyone had an intense dream? Okay, very normal. We have sometimes people come in in the morning and say, you know, last night I was an axe murderer in my dreams. This is my true nature. <laughs> and uh, it's just normal, you know. And there, there's a, there are qualities of purification. Sometimes we see that in our dreams where something comes up. You know, actually last night I had a dream. And I know some of you are psychologists, so you can, you know, stay, light on the analysis, please. Uh, but... but I had, a, I had a dream, which was almost, it was a kind of purification dream. It was related to a kind of ethical purification. I had a dream that I was about to turn in a PhD dissertation using someone else's research. <laughs> I think it was actually my father's research, which <laughs> complicates the plot. <laughs> right. And in the dream... <laughs> yes, this is this is going out on Darmacy, right? <laughs> going, out, going out to the world. <laughs> oh well, I'm I'm okay. <laughs> I may get some interesting emails. <laughs> uh, and so, so in the dream, I looked at it and I said, um, I think I'd rather just use my own research. And I didn't do what I initially was inclined to do. Interesting, right? Interesting is that it seems to me that I heard that as a kind of purification dream, ethical purification. Interesting, right? Just very simple. And that can happen. There's a lot of that. We can, we can have uh, various, various things come up. You know, very prominent in meta retreats is that something like self-judgment or judgment of others come up, meaning... Judgment in the sense of being judgmental. Very, very common uh, in our practice. It's almost like, uh, it's almost endemic in Western culture, this quality of being judgmental. You know, it's, you know as, as teachers, it's definitely in the top three of issues that people work with. It might be number one. You know? And so it's, be, it's very common if that comes up. And, and so... Again, by judgmental, I'm meaning some kind of reactivity that it, there's some kind of negative, uh, especially negative, I think there can be positive judgments, but especially some negative comment towards oneself that has some kind of harshness and reactivity. Often noticing something. You know, I, I sometimes think about the judgmental mind as linking some kind of noticing with a with a emotional reactivity. And so I might notice that I uh, haven't been so concentrated this last half hour. And that can trigger being self-judgmental. You know, I'm not so good at meditation. Maybe I don't have a kind heart. Maybe 
X was correct about me being cold-hearted. And it can, can go into hard places, right? You know, we, we, most of us, almost all of us, have actually uh, deep negative self-judgments which can get touched at times. You know, like, I'm not enough, or there's something problematic about me or flawed about me. And that can get touched at this, you know, and ultimately healed, I think. And so that can be there in our practice. That can come up. And there's a, a nice illustration of the, through the type of judgments that come. This is from a cartoon called Rhymes with Orange, or uh, a strip some of you know. And, and by the way, the judgments can be of others too. I think, I think you know that. <laughs> You know, and retreats are wonderful. I don't know if wonderful is the word, but retreats are a, a prime place for the judgmental mind to happen because, again, there's not that much happening, you know. <laughs> and small things become big, like, right, you, you know, I won't go down the list, but you, you know what they are about oneself or others or, you know, the, the dining hall is a really big place for these things to occur. <laughs> Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to that person. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So we can, work, we can work with these challenging states, you know. Generally, if they're, you know, the guideline that we really offer for practice with difficult states like judgmental mind or maybe anger comes up or some fear is that if it's of moderate level or less, if it's somewhere in the background, we just let it go and we stay with the phrases. If something has significant duration and strength, So it's there for a sustained time. It could be some of us come into the retreat, maybe some event happened. It's maybe a kind of a, maybe a loss. For for some of us, there's been loss right before the retreat. And there might be those emotions. And then if they become quite strong, we can actually work with the mindfulness practice, with the, sometimes with compassion. Again, as Sylvia was suggesting in her instructions this morning, when something strong is there, strong emotions, a strong judgment, we want to make, first make an assessment. How balanced am I? How much can I actually be with this? And if I'm not very balanced, if I feel overly activated, overly triggered, so it's really, I'm stuck, I'm lost in it, then we want to do that which brings us back. That which brings us back from being lost. And that could mean, uh, That could mean standing up, it could mean doing something physical, taking a walk, being with beauty, having a reflection, talking with a teacher. So when something comes up that's in this sort of in this general territory of purification, which is hard and we feel stuck, first thing to do is to say, how can I come back to balance? That's really key because we can't really practice when we're not in balance. Balance means that I can be with it without it taking me away for a period of time. And then we can, 
sometimes we can work with mindfulness when we're balanced. When I, when I work with people with the judgmental mind, there are two general ways that we work. One is to be with mindfulness and inquiry and cultivating greater wisdom and going more deeply into the roots of the judgmental mind. The other is working with heart practices. So metta is an amazing resource if the judgmental mind is there for you. It can be there in a way that really uh, opens us up to another way of being with ourselves. It can really transform our whole sense of ourselves as we get strengthened in metta. And then I see, I've seen this over and over again. We know ourselves increasingly as these kind, loving beings. And one of the ways that something like the judgmental mind gets transformed isn't so much by working it through, but by strengthening something like metta. It gets stronger and stronger, and we, something shifts in our sense of ourselves. It's quite beautiful. It's a way that metta can be very, very powerful. And metta also is an amazing practice to get us unstuck when we're stuck. You know, think of middle of the night, judgment attack, <laughs> right? Can happen. And we can sometimes turn to metta and it helps us to, uh, if the concentration is sufficiently deep, it helps us actually to shift away from that stuckness. We're not necessarily being mindful of it, being with it, but we are shifting away. We talk about this as using metta as an antidote. Very, very important. When metta is strong in daily life, and strong means, I, I think of strong is that we keep the continuity of at least 10 minutes a day. I don't think it takes too much more than that. And then in that middle of the night, the metta should be there. And it, it can be there in a way that we call on it. And um, it, can really, uh, it can really work. I've seen this over and over again. I have some stories, but I'm not, maybe I'll tell them another time. Uh, one I was thinking of particularly was once I once uh, was camping and I thought there was a bear nearby. I'm not going to tell the story. Because <laughs> people had caught a bear there like um, a week before and it was a really great camping spot at a retreat in the mountains in Colorado. And I said, I'll be there. Really nice spot. And then, you know, at 10.30 at night, I said, no, what about that bear? And then, of course, I was interpreting, I am telling a story. I was interpreting, you know, every twig as the bear is coming, right? And then at a certain point I said, probably dramatically, it's time for metta. I just did three hours of metta. <laughs> then I went to sleep very soundly, and I didn't think about the bear for the next week at the retreat. No, no guarantees, but you know, class, maybe one of us will tell the story. Classically, metta was one of the stories about metta was understood as uh, an antidote to fear. That's that quality of the antidote. So the last area I want to talk about really to, to finish is something about this sequence of how metta practice develops and sort of taking us a little further. So we, 
we go through this uh, we go through this process of arriving, stabilizing, developing more integrity in our lives, really bringing the practice more and more into our lives, developing the concentration to do the practice, working with what comes up, developing in concentration, developing uh, through the process of purification. And that involves, as I was saying, quite a lot of active effort. And there comes a time, and I think we all probably have had glimpses of this, when the, as it were, the quality of doing starts shifting to a quality of being. And this is really pointing to that way that metta is, is really at our depths. And the, it's as it were the, the, the depths of our being surface, to use that metaphor. And we have glimpses of that quality of warmth or kindness simply being there without effort, without really trying so hard, you know? And this is really what we're pointing to where the quality of metta as a deep part of our being simply manifesting. And we can sometimes just feel this in our experience as we're practicing. We may just have that sense of kindness, be there. And the phrases may sometimes drop away or just be in the background. Sometimes again, the phrases go to that level, which is not discursive, which is keeping on going, but they're in the background. There may be like 10% of the attention and that quality that we, the meta feeling as it were, comes forth. It's more a quality of being that is, is there. And sometimes when that quality is stronger, our practice is really more like a resting. It's more like a resting in the, resting in our nature. And it can have a a quality of radiance and rest and simplicity and even even a quality of homecoming, a quality of returning to um, something very precious and actually very simple and profound about our being. We may have those glimpses and when we're there, sometimes the way the metta practice may look is that we become more aware of the small moments when metta's not there. You know, that we start noticing, oh, that thought about that person in the dining hall, right in the middle of this beautiful metta, it just popped out, was mean-spirited. You know, and sometimes if I'm in the territory of this, this more this resting kind of metta, I'll find that I look for when the mind is not really in metta, when there's a moment of reactivity or judgmental mind appears. And, you know, it might be I, uh, as a retreatant, I might be making some comment about, look how much that person took on the plate. None of you do this, I'm sure. But I might, you know, or, you know how many judgments do we make about each other? A few. (laughs) So I might notice that and I might then just, what I find in my practice, I notice it and then I come back with four phrases of metta for that person, kind of to make amends, you know. But we get more attuned to noticing when we're off, when something is off. And this can be, this can be quite a, a wonderful practice just to really track when there's a moment of reactivity. This is more 
when we're moving into that, that resting quality. In other words, the metta is more and more integrated. There's a, there's a beautiful story of this from the teachings of the Buddha where he was coming to meet with a group of monks who uh, all called themselves by one name. They called themselves by the name of the elder monk whose name is Anuruddha, was Anuruddha. And he approached them and said, hey, you Anuruddhas, <laughs> you know, how is it that you Anuruddhas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend regarding each other with the eye of affection? And the metta was just the quality of how they were together. You know, as, again, as we are with people we're close to often, right? We have that quality of metta in that simple way. Again, I'm, I was talking about it in terms of practice, but it's also this natural, simple quality that's there in the flow of everyday life, right? Where there's just this metta there without trying, just as this quality of our being surfacing. You know, it's more, we would say, in ter- it's, it's more the, the being mode than the doing mode. And it's there. We, I think we all know this. And so the uh, uh, Anuruddha, the senior Anuruddha, said he spoke of having developed metta for body, speech, and mind and said, Buddha, we have diverse bodies, but we have only one mind and heart. That has been developed by metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. So that that quality of being and integration is where the practice goes. And again, I think we all know this in certain ways, but it it's, can give a, a sense that we, you know, we arrive, we stabilize, we do quite a bit of practice. At certain times there's this quality of being and the, the doing and the purification may, may um, not be there in the same way. There's more a quality of touching the metta. And then, of course, we bring it into our lives. We bring it into the world. And I'll just, I'll just say a few things about this. We'll talk more at the end of the retreat. We, we bring the, the spirit of metta into our speech. We bring the metta, spirit of metta through the ethical precepts. You know, that, that uh, line that Heather gave, I think the first night, uh, one who loves oneself will not intentionally harm another, right? as the metta is stabilized in ourselves and in others, it becomes almost inconceivable to harm when we're so directed towards that kindness and know that, as it were, from the inside. Now we bring, we bring this into, we bring this into our, our, our world, our, our action, Um, someone like Dr. King spoke of the work he was doing as bringing love into the public realm. That his actions were motivated by love. He talked about how only love can turn enemies into friends. That quality of reconciliation. And he spoke of the aim of his practice as creating the beloved community, which, which sounds to me like metta for all beings. That was his direction. That was his, 
That was his inspiration. This is, this is from Dr. King. Let us hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood and sisterhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. It's that hope, that, that vision which is sometimes hard to access nowadays, right? But it's there, it's there really. I think that is the spirit of bringing metta out into the world. I think I'll just finish with two further readings. Uh, One is from the writer Eudora Welty. She said, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight, to part that curtain of indifference. And then uh, from the Metta Sutta to close, again, this this very powerful vision, very simple, powerful, profound vision. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, the divine abode. So may we continue well with this practice and uh, may we find that uh, sort of inner inspiration to, uh, to continue with this uh, audacious enterprise. Okay. So I'll invite, I'll invite Heather to ring the bell three times. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for your practice. To be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.